Salam alaikum to all of you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, for me, it's been an, an honor to be here sharing with all of you. Uh, <clears throat> let me begin by making three points that I think are fundamental. Uh, the first one is to say that we need to be careful with trans-historical categories. What I mean by that is that Eurocentric thinking makes us believe that the common sense of today is the common sense of humanity. Okay? That is, they make us believe that concepts such as slavery, concepts such as uh, racism, or concepts such as uh, look at this one, empire, that they are universal, and that they've been there since the first human appeared on Earth, okay? So this, this is a very typical Eurocentric trap, because it dehistoricizes dehistoricize the categories. Slavery in the modern world have nothing to do with slavery in Muslim civilization or slavery in the Greek civilization. These are completely different things that you cannot mix. Okay? To begin with, modern slavery is racial. Pre-modern slavery was never racial. Okay? Just, just to begin with that. Okay? I can go on about this three hours. I won't continue. I'm just saying beware of trans-historical categories because they are a trap of Eurocentric thinking, because what they want to achieve in doing that is make us believe that all these things are human nature. And when you think this is human nature, there's nothing you can do about it except to make sure you're on top, not below. Except to make sure you're not the slave, you're the master. And this is the law of the jungle, okay? That's the law of the jungle. So, this is the kind of uh, thing we need to be careful and we need to historicize all these things to see how uh, many of the things that we live today and many of the common sense are historically shaped and constructed okay, uh, by a very particular history of colonization and imperialism. And so we need to, to contextualize these things and avoid these transhistorical narratives because what in the end they want to say is that after all the West haven't done anything that bad. Because before us, the Muslim, the Chinese, the Ottoman, everybody did the same and we're just doing what everybody have done in the past. That's not true. Okay? So, that's one point. Second premise is we need to, I want to also say that Eurocentrism is not an ethnocentrism. That's a major fallacy. Ethnocentrism is one thing, Eurocentrism is another one. They are different. I can, I, I, you will understand these points I'm making now at the end of my talk, but I'm beginning there just to avoid misunderstanding. Eurocentrism, ethnocentrism is when people take their culture or their tradition, and from there they build knowledge. And I don't see a problem with that. As long as you're open to listen to other cultures, learn from others, but always from your particularity, not blending yourself into whatever, into nothing, okay? So, ethnocentrism in itself 
is not a problem. Eurocentrism is a problem because Eurocentrism is, first of all, epistemically racist because it thinks that all the other knowledge are inferior to them and they think of themselves as superior. They think of themselves as universal and everybody else particularistic, and that's the argument they will raise to say, my knowledge is superior to you, okay? because I am universal, and is a, an idolatric universalism, because they think they are thinking from nowhere, it's a God-eye view. They pretend to have a God-eye view of knowledge, okay? and so it's a shirk universalism. Okay? And so this kind of Eurocentrism hides who is thinking and from where they're thinking from. So it's not ethnocentric. It's not saying I'm Chinese and I think the, the center, the map should be with China, China at the center. It's not that. They're not, someone talking about it is telling you where they're thinking from and it's not hiding anything. But Eurocentric thinking is going to hide you who is thinking from where they're thinking and from whose interest. They will say, I'm objective. This is objective knowledge in the sense of neutrality. You see, it's universal, valid for everybody. You see, it doesn't matter. It's non-situated knowledge because it's like a God-eye view. This, so it's, it's, a, it's a kind of idolatric take into knowledge. Okay? Uh, and so they will hide from you who is speaking and from where they're speaking from to then sell you their, their knowledge as if it was valid for, for the planet. Okay? Uh, and the third point I want to make is that when I use the term colonial, I'm not referring only to colonial administrations. I'm talking about the project of modernity, of Western civilization, that is broader than just a colonial administration. It was through colonialism that they were able to expand and to carry on Western civilization to all the rest of the world by destroying other civilizations and imposing this Western civilization everywhere. Okay? So colonialism is an important thing, colonial administrations in, in most parts of the world. Okay? But it, it doesn't get exhausted in colonial administration, the modern colonial project. Because it went into forms of being, forms of thinking, forms of brain, forms of art. There is an aesthetic racism, there is a pedagogical racism, there is a epistemic racism, there is a, you could go over all the many areas of social existence and you will see the West and the rest there, okay, the hands of this structure reorganizing from within all these different areas of social existence. Okay, so this is, I wanted to begin with these three points just to, 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 to clarify that when I talk about, for example, in this third point, when I talk about colonialism, I'm not talking just about colonial administrations, although colonial administration was a condition, historical condition of possibility for having a, a modern colonial world the way we have today. So for me, colonial relations are not exhausted in the existence of a colonial administration. You could have colonial relations without colonial administrations. If you, you colonize in the mind, if you colonize in the forms of being, thinking, spiritually, etc., then you, you are in a colonial structure, even though there's no colonial administration. Okay? To say what? That the world haven't been decolonized that we're still in a colonial world. 
that the myth of the 20th century is to have thought that the end of colonial administration means the end of colonialism. And the point I'm trying to make is no, we're still pretty much in a colonial world, despite the fact that colonial administration have disappeared from most of the world, not all, as we know. But still, the formal independent countries, we know that they're not in a real sovereign position relative to many structures of power, economic, political, cultural, you name it. Okay? That's what Kwame Krumah coined as neocolonialism. Okay? But I'm going, we're going beyond that. When I say we, is the, the perspective of modern, modern coloniality coming from the Americas. We we're trying to also look at the failures of national liberation movements. And we're looking at, okay, what, what, are, what will require in the 21st century a new process or a second wave of decolonization. And it requires decolonization in many areas of social existence that are not exhausted in the question of, uh, of just a colonial, you know, a, a achieving independence from a colonial power. You know, and we know the, the history of that. Okay? So, just to clarify, Eurocentrism is not an ethnocentrism because Eurocentrism hides with thinking and it's an idolatric universalism. So they won't tell you they're thinking from Europe or a Eurocentric perspective. No, they will say, no, I'm thinking from an objective, neutral, scientific point of view. Okay? And, 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 and trans historical categories are essential to the common sense of uh, Eurocentrism today. So anyway, having said that, I would like to begin my talk. I'm going to talk and focus my talk a lot in European, local European history. Okay? The reason I want to focus there is not that that's the only point from which you can enter into the conversation. There are many geopolitical locations from where you can enter the conversation and look at world history from different you know, geopolitical locations in the world, and come up with different narratives according to different locations. The only reason I'm focusing on, on, on the European history is because it could have been a local history that with no significance to the rest of the world. But it became a local history with a significance to the rest of the world because after 1492, they did this project of European colonial expansion and created this monster called Western civilization and colonized most of the world. And so because of that, I want to focus on local European history because it helps us to understand a lot of the structures that exist today, structures of domination, exploitation, and oppression. Okay? That's why I'm focusing on that. Okay? Not because there is anything uh, special about that history. Now, I want to begin with Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. Okay? I want to begin there, way back. Uh, because well, uh, 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 the, message, the message of Prophet Jesus, uh, peace be upon him, the message was a message of Tawhid. Okay? Let me say a few things. I, can, I mean, I can go for hours about this because there are some uh, colleagues and friends and brothers and sisters working on decolonizing Jesus Christ. Okay? Because a lot of what we know of Jesus Christ is all colonial garbage. Okay? 
basically created by the narrative of Christendom. I, I make a distinction with Christianity and Christendom. Okay? And a lot of what we know of Jesus Christ is Christendom narratives. have nothing to do with the, let's put it on quote, real Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, in first thing that I always ask in Christian audiences is, what was the name used by Jesus Christ to talk about God? It's been 2,000 years of Christianity. And they cannot name the word used by Jesus Christ to name God. They, they don't know. Because all they know is the translation to Greek and Latin of the Bible. They don't know the Aramean narratives. Okay? And Aramean texts. And Aramean language. That was the language of Prophet Jesus. Okay? And the name he used for God was Allah. Allah. That's the name. Okay? Second, how did he pray? How did Jesus Christ pray? They cannot tell you how he prayed. And it's very clear you read the Aramean Bible. I have some brothers and sisters from Spain translating from Aramean to Spanish. Muslim brothers and, and sisters trans, doing this translation. It's amazing, amazing what you get when you do that exercise. Instead of going through the Latin and Greek versions of the Bible, you go directly from the Aramean and you get a complete different picture. Okay? And how did he pray? They cannot tell you. In the Aramean Bible, it's very clear how he prayed. On his knees with his head on earth. Not on the floor, on earth. Okay? And, I mean, I'm giving you just a few examples. And there is a brother that just sent me a manuscript called Decolonizing Jesus Christ. This brother who is trans have translated all this stuff. And showing the, the difference between the translation from Latin and Greek to English, Spanish, to other language, and the direct translation from Aramean to Spanish. And it's just completely different narratives. And the notion of Tawit is there in Jesus Christ. He never said he was the son of God. Never. That's another uh, false uh, interpretation. He always, always in the, in the, in the Aramean uh, uh, Bible is a prophet. Okay? A prophet. He never said he was the son of God. Anything like that. Okay? So these are very important things to begin with. Because the notion of Tawit is there. What is the notion of Tawit that was there in early Christianity? I will call this Christianity Unitarian Christianism. Unitarian Christianism is not the same as Trinitarian Christianism. This is very important for the thing we're going to be discussing. Okay? Unitarian Christianism has the notion of Tawit. Okay? What does that mean? That means that no terrestrial you say terrestrial in English? Yeah. No. Yes. Er, earthly terrestrial. Terrestrial. terrestrial power is sacred. It's sacred. It's, it's Jesus, Prophet Jesus is within the tradition of the prophets okay, which is calling attention to shirk okay, to idolatry okay? Be that an idol, or be that power structure, or be that whatever, okay? 
And that's why prophets always get into political trouble. Because they were always calling attention that terrestrial powers are not sacred. And therefore are subject to critique. And so the critique, the prophethood tradition is a critique to idolatry of all kinds, not just the polytheistic idolatry of idols, but also the critique to the, the attempt at making idolatry of terrestrial power. And the, the, that means that if it's not sacred, then it's subject to critique. It's human created with all the problems that are carried and is subject to critique. That's why Christianism, Unitarian Christian, was an anti-imperialist movement against the Roman Empire. Because they were desacralizing the Roman Empire. Roman Empire was creating a legitimation through sacralizing its structure, making it sacred, okay, in the eyes of everybody. And the Christian with the notion of Tawit, early Christian, Unitarian Christian, demolished that. Because they were saying, no, no, the emperor and the Roman, they are terrestrial power. They are not sacred power. And if they are not sacred power, they are subject to critique. You see? And they were criticizing the Roman Empire. Okay? So they, they were an anti-imperialist movement that were a, a challenge to the Roman Empire because they were desacralizing the Roman Empire. Okay? Uh, the notion, I, I refuse to translate into a European language, especially Western European languages, Allah or Allah into God. And the reason I, I don't like that is because the moment you translate like that, the common sense of Europeans and in European language is Christendom. And in Christendom, God is a white man with a beard in a cloud with a cane watching everybody, okay? And if you misbehave, hit you with a cane in your head, okay? And if you continue misbehaving, send you to hell, okay? But it's, it's, it's an it's a idolatric image, you see? And in fact, the notion, when you look at Allah, Allah, which is the word... Uh, Prophet Jesus used for, for what we translate, I, I would say, erroneously as God, you see, because this notion of God is too tied to the common sense of, uh, of this sheer notion of Christendom, you see. In fact, Allah is more a cosmological vision or notion in the sense that is, I prefer when I'm with European audiences or, or Christian audiences, uh, or westernized items, I prefer to use a long phrase. Because then the same notion of Allah or Allah you could find in Pacha. Pacha is the notion used by indigenous people in the Americas. And this idea that they are polytheistic, that's a complete nonsense. These are European anthropologists go there two weeks, they come back, and then they write a book as experts of Taimaras. You see, and they say, oh, they are polytheistic. See, and they don't know anything about anything over there, they go two weeks there and they become the experts of this tribe or that tribe, okay? In fact, they, they are just distorting what is really, they're, they're saying. And Pasha is a notion that is very close to the notion of Allah. Pasha is a notion that is also 
cosmológica. ¿Okay? Unity is, is unity, difference within unity. ¿Okay? It's this notion that we are all created ¿okay? by this divine force, divine energy, ¿okay? have created the universe, have created all forms of life. ¿okay? But none of those creations is equivalent to Allah or to Pacha. That's the Tawit notion. That is, the Unitarian notion is we are all created by that divine force, but nobody can claim that is that force. That force is beyond. So it's transcendental because it's beyond, but it's immanent at the same time because we are all created by that divine force. So I prefer to translate Allah or Pacha or notions like this that are more into the notion of Tawhid as a divine energy or force create, created of created, creative of life with intelligence. Why with intelligence? Everything, if you look at it, is amazing. Okay? It's created with a, a perfect design. Okay? So, we're talking about so when you say, when you talk about a divine force creative of life with intelligence as the translation of Allah or Pasha, it's very easy to say God. You say God, is immediately people translate into the, the white man with a beard in a cloud with a king watching you, okay? Which is a, a, a cheap notion, okay? And, but anyway, so this is, I, say, I would say, very important because if you understand why we are all created by this divine force, but nobody of us or nothing can claim to be that force, then the possibilities of opening for knowledge, critique, philosophy, everything is open-ended now. Because the moment you sacralize anything, okay, then you fall, you, you fall into the question of idolatry, and when you sacralize, let's say, structures of power, immediately you are in a situation where the possibilities for human knowledge, human creation, etc., are basically constrained. Okay? So, what happened was that because of this notion, Christianity, Unitarian Christianity, became an anti-imperialist subversive force for the Roman Empire. And what the Roman Empire did was try to crush them. They couldn't, and to make a long story short, in the 4th century, Emperor Constantine found a solution to this problem. And was, if you cannot fight them, join them. So what he did was to appropriate Christianity as an ideology of the state, okay, co-opt this movement by appropriating Christianity, making an ideology of the, of the Roman Empire, making the Roman Empire into a Christian institution. But in doing that, he has to transform the theology. Because if he, trans if he just take that like that and say, okay, it's, you know, and take the Unitarian Christianity, you see, then he won't be able to resacralize the Roman Empire. You see the point? The appropriation is to resacralize it, to make it sacred again, the emperor and, and, the, and, the, and the empire, you see? And 
And, and part of the move was, okay, let's, let's claim we are Christians and we are representative of God on earth, etc., all these things, okay? So he has to change, they have, it's not, it was not content, it was a whole structure, they, they have to create a, a, a change in the theology from Tawhid into Trinitarian Christianism, from Unitarian Christianism into Trinitarian Christianism. Okay? The Trinitarian Christianism then sacralized the figure of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and make the analogy that the same way he is the Son of God, the Empire and the Emperor are also a representative of God on earth. You see, and so they resacralized with this narrative and created then a, a destruction of the notion of Tawhid, not only by idolatrizing the structure of the Roman Empire and making it godlike, but also by creating a dualism, not a, a, a unit, you know, the notion of difference within unity, but the notion of dualism. What does that mean? Dualism, what they did was then to split the world into the spiritual world and the material world. Spiritual world is everybody who is with the Roman Empire and with the dogmas of, of, a, of Trinitarian Christianity. Anybody who is questioning the Roman Empire, the emperor, or the dogmas of the Trinitarian Christianity, be that a scientist, be that a philosopher, be that a movement, be that an individual, is on the side of material world that is evil, is on the side of Satan. So they created this split between the spiritual world and the material world to, to instrumentalize for the benefits and the interests of the Roman Empire and the Emperor a narrative that will place on the side of evil and Satan anybody they don't like. This make Christian European civilization fall into a period of 1,200 years of obscurantism. Obscurantism. Because they will be crucifying the scientists. They will be crucifying the philosophers. They will be crucifying the political critics. The, the, the critiques to the emperor and the empire, they will be crucified, etc. You know, so it was impossible under that structure to develop science, philosophy, you name it, okay? Or to be, or to develop a critique, political critique, and so on, okay? So here you have a major shift in local European history, okay? A major shift that is spiritual, epistemic, uh, consequences in relation to production of knowledge, science, uh, material technology, you name it, okay? It was a period of obscurantism for 1,200 years. When the Roman Empire fell, then this structure of Christendom became divided in, in, in what is called later feudalism, the period of uh, little uh, feudal lords. Okay, with monarchical structure, but repeating and reproducing the, the same structure of Christendom, okay, where they sacralize the power, the feudal lord is the representative of God, is a sacred figure, 
the power and the, uh, the political authority is centralized, and, and you have again the same thing, but now split in different fields, you know, feudal states all over Europe once the Roman Empire you know, uh, was demised. Okay? Uh, so you have this structure, but instead of crucifying, they will burn you alive. They change the methods. Okay? Now, before it was crucifixion, now they will burn you alive as some kind of evil force, witchery, whatever. Okay? They will accuse you, and then you'll be burned. That's why scientists in Christian Europe were always hiding, because they were afraid they would be burned. Okay? Philosophers, etc., you name it. Okay? Now, I, uh, the, the revelation brought to the world light. Light in the sense of breaking with these dualistic, idolatric structures and opening up the possibility for light, for knowledge, okay? for spiritual development, for scientific development, philosophical, you name it, aesthetic, you name it. Okay? That came to Europe. Okay? That came to Europe. In, 17, in, in the year 711, arrived 6,000 soldiers from Morocco and entered through, through Gibraltar, okay? led by Tariq, who was the famous... Uh, uh, huh? Tariq Benziad. yes. Tariq Benziad, who was the famous leader of, or, or general or commander of this force. Okay? Now, we have also to go over that history, I don't have the time, just to say that there was no Muslim invasion of Spain. Okay? That's another myth that is carried on into the present and goes into this thing about the reconquest. This RE, reconquest, the RE is very problematic. Okay? And I always tell the Spaniards, until you decolonize the RE, you won't be able to move forward. Because you're going to be always looking at the world from a racist, uh, Eurocentric vision. And you always are the innocent who are now, because the idea of reconquest is that there was a conquest, and now I'm going to reconquer what was taken away from me. Okay? But in fact, that place we call Spain today, in the 8th century, okay, was, it was a hundred years, more or less, or less than a hundred years from uh, the Revelation. Okay? Uh, that place was not Spain, the way we know it, today or in the 15th century. Okay? It was populated by Iberian indigenous people with many languages, it was populated by Unitarian Christians that were opposed to Trinitarian Christianism, Christianism coming from, from Rome okay? and from the Vatican, uh, because at that time it was Constantine, remember? But from the Vatican. And the power structure there, and Jewish, there were Jewish people there, and the power structure were, were the Visigoths who were in power, together with the bishops of the Trinitarian Church, Christian Church, okay? So the Visigoths and the bishops together were the oppressors of that territory. And what happened was that Jewish, Jewish people from 
that part of the world that was not, I, I won't call it Spain, because there was no Spain at that time. So if there was an invasion, it was an invasion to another place, not to Spain. Spanish was a dialect of a small group of people in the center of that territory, the Iberian Peninsula. It was, there were many languages there. Spanish was not even the most important language. Okay, just, just to give you a sense that this is not the Spain we made. So there was, if there was an invasion, you want to accept that premise, it was not to Spain to begin with. Okay? But I will question even the idea of invasion. Because what happened was that they called the Muslims to come in and help them in the liberation against this oppressive power structure. And that's why in three years, over the whole territory of the Iberian Peninsula, all the way to Poitiers, in the south of France, okay, in three years without airplanes, without motor vehicles, without tanks, without anything okay, that we know today of modern warfare, 6,000 troops from Morocco entered, Muslim troops, and liberated the whole territory. How do you explain that? It took the Spanish monarchy 800 years for the so-called reconquest. It was only three years that they emancipated the whole territory from the Visigoth power and the bishops. And this was Unitarian Christians. What happened was it was a war of liberation. Everybody joined. And that's why they beat up in three years this power all over the Iberian Peninsula, all the way to the south of France. That's what happened. And this is a complete different history from what we get in the textbooks. And this is very important for Muslims to know this history. Why? Because today, with Islamophobia narratives, they're telling us that there was this conquest of Muslims of Spain and so on. And the funny thing is to hear brothers and sisters repeating this and accepting the premise. And say, oh yes, you know, the, the Muslim conquest of, you know, oh yes. You know, and no, wait a minute, you need to take these things carefully because this narrative has a purpose and have are tied to political projects. And so you need to be careful in terms of the narrative they're, they're you know, constructing to not fall into that trap. Because I heard many you know, Muslim brothers and sisters repeating this, this thing as if, you, you know, and the word conquest and things like that, when in fact there was no conquest. It was a war of liberation. Okay? And that's why in three years they emancipated the whole territory. Okay? Now, uh, let me say the following, because I'm going to, to go into the fall of Al-Andalus. I want to focus on that, again, because of what I said at the, at the beginning. It would have been, all this history I'm telling you, would have been something marginal to the rest of the world if it was not by the fact that after 1492, they went global, you see, and conquered the world. That's why I'm focusing on this history, because of the implication it has for, for all of us. Now, what happened was that then, with Islamic civilization coming to the south of Europe, you have a huge contrast between the northern part and the southern part. Okay? And the problem, the, the, the contrast were, and I will mention very fast several things that have to do with the forms of political authority, etc. First thing, as I said, is the concept of God. The concept of God is idolatric in Christendom. Okay? It's, it's this white man with a beard in a cloud, okay? Watching you. 
Uh, the concept of Allah is a concept that is, uh, as I mentioned before, a, a cosmological notion that is not tied, is transcendental and immanent at the same time. Okay? Uh, the, the, the concept of uh, dualism did not allow them to produce, they, you know, while in one side, Tawit celebrated philosophers and scientists, in the other side they were burning scientists and philosophers alive. Okay? So, here you have a form of political authority okay, that is leading towards different uh, paths okay, between the Christian European civilization and Islamic, uh, let's put it unquote, European civilization in the south of Europe. Okay? Uh, then you have the relation with difference or with minorities. Okay? In Christian Europe, it was impossible to recognize difference because they have the notion of the dualistic notion means that is about the, the, the part that they call the spiritual world, that is the good part, and then evil is the material world, right? That part they call the spiritual world, they think about it in a homogeneous way. It's unity without difference. This is the concept. It's unity without difference. What that means is that wherever they conquer territory, they will impose the logic of unity without difference. What does that mean? That anybody who is different has to be exterminated. So you have here the logic of ethnic cleansing. That is, if you're Jew or you Muslim, you have to, they, they kill you if you don't convert by, they force you for convert to conversion, okay? And they, if you don't convert, if you resist, they kill you, or you have to run away. And where did Jews run away? The Jews, the Jews run away to Muslim land. Because in Muslim lands, they have their rights recognized, okay? Because in, in the, the political power, of in the Muslim side, I'm talking more about the south of Europe because Islamic civilization we know is very complex and very broad and you could see also all kinds in different moments of history of shirk also coming in to conquer uh, even Muslim political authority. Okay, we know all that history. But in Al-Andalus, it was very interesting because in Al-Andalus they were having this notion of Tawit it meant that first the authority were not sacralized. That's why if you go to Alhambra in Granada, all the walls say the victory is only of Allah. So imagine the Sultan is in a place where all the walls is reminding that you're not God. Whatever you gain in your in your whatever is victory you have is do not belong to you. Victory is only of Allah. It's reminding that this is that allow for debates, political critique, etc. Because the state is not sacralized, okay. And so, in terms of also different, the notion of unity, different within unity, allow also for the recognition of minority rights. Christian Jews were coexisting together with rights recognized in a Muslim state, political power, okay. Where Christian Jews were living together with Muslims, okay, and uh, was quite different from the other side. Okay? And the other side you have the impossibility of Muslim and Jews living together with the Christians. Because the notion of, a, a, of, of Christian dom, of dualism, and the notion of a, a unity without difference, 
impose a logic of eliminating everything that is different wherever they rule. Okay? And so that's why Jews were persecuted among Muslims, wherever they, they came and conquered territory. Okay? Rights, rights of women. In the Christian, uh, in Christian Europe, well, I think right to divorce is something very recent in Christian Europe. It's, it's the 20th century, 20th, 20th century, late 20th century in many places, phenomenal. Okay? Right to divorce existed Islamic civilization more than thousand years ago. Rights to property, women having property, rights to, you could go over the list. Okay? So, I'm trying to derive how these cosmological visions contrast them and see the consequences for forms of political authority and relations to science, knowledge, relation to minorities, rights of minorities, relations to uh, uh, rights of women, etc., etc. We can go over many areas and do the comparison, and you will see the huge contrast within one side and the other. Okay? So when they were uh, conquering, uh, in the process of conquering, not reconquering, conquering territory, they were imposing this logic of one state, one identity, one spirituality, one population. This is very important for our conversation and including for the Pakistani discussion that we're having. Okay? They start imposing the notion of one state, one form of political story, with one identity, one spirituality, one population. So everybody under the rule of that state, all the population has to fit that identity, that spirituality. Anybody who is different is either killed or expelled. Okay? Unity without difference. Okay? So this is the beginnings of the nation state. The concept of the nation state, which is part of the problem, not part of the solution, the concept of the nation state is, a pro is part of the problem. And you will see here the beginnings of the notion of the nation-state, which is the pretension, the fictional pretension, that the identity of the state okay, should correspond with the identity of the population. We know that doesn't exist anywhere. And we know all the problems that structure has created. And that is coming from the conquest of Al-Andalus. This, this is the history of this structure that later became secularized, but it began this way with the Spanish Castilian monarchy, okay? Christian monarchy conquering Al-Andalus and imposing this logic. One state, one identity, one, one spirituality, one population. And this logic later become what we call today the nation state, you know, which is a terrible structure. As if you compare it to the political authority of Muslim civilization in Al-Andalus, there was the notion of, there was no pretension of nation-state. There was the acknowledgement of different communities with rights recognized, okay, and no pretension that uh, there's only going to be one identity. That's why it was possible the coexistence of multiple spiritualities and groups together only under a Muslim political rule. Okay? You could see the same when, when you compare uh, the Ottoman with the monarchy, Spanish monarchy. Okay? Uh, I always say, because you, you always hear in Europe this thing, oh, but you know the Ottomans 
50 years before the final conquest of Al-Andalus, they took the Sophia Cathedral and turned it into a mosque. Okay? And I always respond. Today, in Turkey, you could track families of Jews, families of Christians, families of different branches of uh, within Muslim and within Christianity and within uh, that goes back to that time. And those communities are there and have their synagogue, have their churches, have their they're still there. If you go to Spain, you cannot say the same. All the Jews of the 15th century, all the Muslims of the 15th century, there's no communities today that can claim an origin there. Muslims today in Spain are what? Muslims today in Spain are converts or immigrants. But you cannot track them because the process of conquering Al-Andalus basically destroyed either by forced conversion or by extermin physical extermination, okay, uh, the possibility for those communities to continue into the future. And you could see the contrast here between the Ottoman and the Spanish monarchy, because in, in, in Turkey today, you could see the continuities, in not only in Turkey, in all the space that we call the Ottoman, you know, that today is split into this crazy notion of nation-state, uh, but you could trace down those communities back in time. That means there was no extermination. That means there was a respect to their, to their, to their rights. During the Ottomans, in Palestine, Jews have more rights, okay, because they even have an autonomy structure during the Ottomans. The Jews in Palestine have political autonomy than what Christians and Muslims have today in, in, in the Zionist state. Think about this. Under the Ottomans, Jews in Palestine have more rights than what Christians and Muslims have in, in, under the Zionist state today. Because the Zionist state is a structure of Christendom. As I will explain in a second. That's Christendom. That's not Judaism. That's Christendom. The logic of the purity of one state, one identity, one population. This is Christendom. This goes back to this period that we're talking about. So, so basically, uh, so what happened was that then the, the, the colonization of Al-Andalus, the, the destruction of Al-Andalus, was accompanied by a process of what we call today settler colonialism. What is settler colonialism? It's this colonial project in which the colonizer goes and do any cleansing of the land, take the indigenous people of the place out, appropriate their houses, their, their, their land, their territory, everything, okay, coming with their families to settle there. Okay? That's in the literature called settler colonialism. But that began in the conquest of Al-Andalus. And what they did was to bring Christians from the north to repopulate the territory that was immediately cleansed from Muslim and Jews. Okay? Those Muslim and Jews who stay will, will stay under a structure called the encomienda, okay? which is a structure in which they will be submitted to forced labor, okay? forced labor, and 
at the same time that they are watching their conversion. So those Muslims and Jews who survived this conquest, they were they, they survived only because they forced they claimed to be converted. Okay? What they did was to put them in the encomendero. The encomendero was a Christian who came from the north, take over territory, you know, put them to work on their coarse labor, and the encomendero was not only the, the person in charge of watching the exploitation of labor, but also watching the conversion. So I have this double task, exploitation labor and domination in terms of conversion. So this person is in charge of watching that they're really becoming uh, uh, Christians. How do they do that? Well, they have methods that, uh, that you know, people like Foucault claims is 19th century, but Foucault was not Eurocentric, was so, he was worse, he was French-centric. You know, so he thought that all these methods of domination, he called biopolitics, was a 19th century thing. But if you go to the history of Spain, 15th century, you could see the biopolitics there that Foucault says is a 19th century thing. You could see it way back. So if he would have been Eurocentric, at least he would have been better. Okay? But he was so French-centric that he couldn't see beyond the boundaries of France. But anyway. Uh, at least he would have known the history of, of Spain if he would have been at least Eurocentric. But anyway, the problem is that uh, at that time they start the state will be watching Muslim and Jews, and they will be watching them in terms of what they do on Friday, what they do on Saturday, uh, what they eat. They do the feast of the pork, and they will watch if they're eating pork or not. Uh, they will do, I mean, all kinds of things that you can imagine, we can go on and on, that they will be doing to watch if they are truly converted. Okay? How many times they watch? It's, it's, that's very arbitrary. That's very arbitrary. So, the, the, there was, so they were imposing the settler colonialism, the, the political authority of a, a proto-nation state idea, okay? and uh, the encomienda. Okay, these were the three things they were imposing whatever they were conquering. Okay, and we need to remind that Jews were running away to Muslim land because, because Zionist Orientalist writing today has done a revisionist of history and makes us believe that the conflict in Palestine is a, is a 1,000 year conflict of Muslims being the worst anti-Semites. Well, why is it that Jews were running away to Muslim land from the Crusades all the way to Second World War? Okay, why they were running there? Well, it's obvious. They were running away from persecution of Christian, Christiandom, you see, and going to Muslim land because in Muslim land they had their rights recognized. You know, they could live uh, together with Muslims without no problem. You know, so this is, this is uh, uh, something that is rewritten today to make us believe that this is the Palestinian conflict in Palestine is not about colonial races or colonial settlement settler colonialism, it's about you know, Muslim being tolerant and things like this. Okay? So it's, it's always good to remind these things, you know, given the narratives that are going on today. And so what happened was that by the end of the 15th century, the last remaining space of Al-Andalus was Granada. Okay? Let me say that I refuse to use the word empire to talk about the Ottomans. Okay? That had to do with my first point about avoiding trans-historical categories and calling the Aztecs empire, 
the Ottoman Empire, the Chinese Empire, everybody's empire, okay? It's as if I was... You, the, 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 it, it doesn't shock us to use this term because we are so westernized and colonized by the West that we take it as normal to say Ottoman Empire, Chinese Empire, Aztec Empire, Inca Empire. But wait a minute. These are completely different forms of political authority. The Ottomans were a sultanate. The Chinese were a lineage. The Aztec and the, and the, and the Inca were something completely different. Why are we using the concept of empire from the Roman Empire history to call everything else empire? It's as if I would call uh, the British Sultanate, the French Sultanate, the Spanish Sultanate. The when you say that, it, we laugh because it, then it becomes like, but we don't laugh when we do it the other way. Nobody laughed here when I, when I said uh, Ottoman Empire, Chinese Empire. Nobody laughed. Nobody looked at it as funny. We take it for granted. We have so much colonizing our common sense today that we are taking for granted categories as this. This is very, very incredible. But when we say Spanish Sultanate, British Sultanate, it's doing the reverse that they do, and then we laugh. It's funny when we hear that, you see? But this has to do with our subjectivity. They have colonized our subjectivity. Okay? So, so the, the point I'm trying to make, okay, we are now at the end of the 15th century. The last remaining part of colonization is Granada, okay, of that part of the world called Al-Andalus. Okay? Now, up to here, if the history will have ended here, and they will have continued doing things inside Europe, this will be just a footnote in history. But the reason it's not a footnote in history is for what I'm going to talk now. Because what happened was that at the end of the 15th century, Christopher Columbus comes and meets with the king and the queen, Ferdinand the Catholic and Elizabeth the Catholic, okay? before the Congress of Granada, and comes with the Enterprise of the Indies. That was the name of the document, Enterprise of the Indies. And he comes and meets with them and shows them the plan, okay? Enterprise of the Indies. Why Indies? This is a very important thing to say. Because when we go to Western narrative of school, schooling, they tell us that Columbus was this courageous guy who took a risk because at that time people believed that the earth was flat and therefore they could fall into a precipice if they continued through the Atlantic or through... Remember those, this thing we hear in the schools? It's just, this is another mythological kind of narrative because everybody knew at the time that the world was surrounded and especially Muslim civilization was already proved that, you know, and many Europeans already knew that. Some of them did not know about it, but they already knew that. And Columbus knew that because Columbus was a map trader, apart from being a navigator. He was a map trader. So he had access to the Chinese maps. What are the Chinese maps? The Chinese have cartographized the world, as a cartography of the world, before the Europeans. The Chinese have maps that chose North, Central, and South America. The first one to arrive to America were not the Europeans, were the Vikings, 
where Muslims were Africans and were Chinese, way before. Indigenous civilizations of the Americans were way advanced to what was going on in Europe at the time. They, were, they had the most precise calendar in the world up to 1492 were the Maya calendar. They, were, they, were, they have infrastructure. Okay? Uh, uh, they were civilization with a very, very advanced technology, knowledge, you name it. Okay? So these were not isolated you know, people nude in the jungle the way this is described to us. These were really very advanced civilization. Just imagine that the central city of the Aztec have more than one million people. The largest city of Europe at the time did not have 60,000 people. Just think about this, okay? Think about this. So he was going with maps, okay? He was going with maps that were Chinese maps. That's why all the navigators of the conquest of the Americas that the Spanish sent over there were all Italians. Because those maps have arrived to Italy through the missions of the Vatican in China. So they have all this map running around, and this was like, a, a, you know, gave them a power because they have these maps. And so he showed the king and the queen the maps, but because no European could read those maps, Columbus, in the Chinese maps, you see North, Central, South America as a peninsular extension of China. So the Pacific Ocean is shrink. It's not connected, you know, North America is not connected with Euro-Asia through the Bering Strait. It's, it shows as an extension of China, a peninsula extension of China. You could see very clearly North, Central, South America, the Andean Mountains, you could see in those maps. And I, uh, there is one of those maps in a famous museum in Istanbul, here, in Istanbul. It's one, there's one of them, I don't remember the name of that museum, but it's a famous a big museum here in Istanbul have a copy of those maps, and you could see at the entrance of the of the museum. But anyways, the 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 thing is that uh, Colum nobody could read those maps, so they knew India was close to China because the Portuguese had gone through the south of Africa already over there, you know. And Columbus was with the Portuguese in the conquest of Africa to the south in the 15th century. Okay, but they didn't know how to read the maps. And so he called North, Central, South America, India. Oh, that's India, because it's close to China. It's a peninsular extension of China. So he said, this is India. That's why he called it Enterprise of the Indies. Because the whole competition of the empires there, European empire, was who go first, or who had the, the, the faster route to the east, because war material production was in the east, not in Europe. Europe was a very marginal, impoverished, obscurantist, a, a village of the world. And so what they were doing was, okay, competing in terms of who have access to those commodities to resell them in Europe. And so the, 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 the Portuguese have controlled Africa, the, the, through, the route through the south of Africa. Uh, the, the, the Venetians have control over the, the, the east and through land. And the Ottomans were in this side. So for the, for the Spaniards, the only way was through the Atlantic. And so Columbus showed this man, said, this is the way to go. We can go through, through the Atlantic. Okay? Let me say one more thing that, about the conquest of Al-Andalus. It was not just ethnic cleansing, a process of genocide and physical extermination of people, but also epistemicide, which is very important to the conversation. Because what they did was not only 
destroying physically people and forcing conversion, but they also burn the libraries. So the Library of Cordoba, that have more than half a million books, remember, the largest library in Christian Europe at the time did not have 1,000 books. The Library of Cordoba has more than half a million books. Okay? That tells you something about material civilization no? and relation to knowledge and all of that. Okay? They burned it. They burned also the Library of Granada. They burned the library with more than 250,000 books. But while they were burning the libraries, they have people going who read Arabic and they were selecting books that have to do with questions of technology or questions, scientific things, etc., and saving them and taking them back to the church and to the libraries of the church. Okay? And many of those books ended up in the library in Rome, in the Vatican. Okay? So you have here a process of transference of knowledge. So there will be picking books here and there that they will find useful and burning the others. Okay? So this is important you know, to understand you know, because of how much of the influence of all this knowledge they got from Al-Andalus in the production of the European Renaissance and later modern European or Western sciences. Okay? Uh, so they were, there was a practice of genocide and epistemicide at the same time. Because part of the converting the population is also erasing the memory, erasing the identity. To erase the identity, you need to erase the memory. You see, to erase the memory, you burn the books, you burn the libraries, and then you, you create a new narrative of history. Then you create a new narrative of history. So, coming back to Columbus. Columbus will then meet with them, show them the plan, and Isabel, Elizabeth the, the Catholic tell him, listen, this is great, we're going to go ahead, but first we need to unify the whole Iberian Peninsula under one crown, one identity, one spirituality, one population. And we need to destroy the last remaining part of Al-Andalus, which is Granada. Okay? So you have to wait until the fall of Granada, and then we, we go abroad. Okay? So part one, fall of Granada, taking over the whole territory. Part two, then we go to the, to, to the Indies, the Americas. Okay? And so, uh, to make a long story short, Columbus went to Santa Fe, a few kilometers away from Granada, where the Christian forces were based. And then in January 2, 1492, is the fall of Granada, okay? January 11, 1492, arrived Columbus and meet in the Palace of Alhambra with the king and the queen, and that's when the queen gave him, that's what, nine days after the fall of Granada, is Columbus meeting in one of the rooms of Alhambra with the king and the queen, and the queen gave him the money and the royal authority to go to colonize in the Americas. Okay? That's why the history I've been telling you so far becomes now a problem for everybody. Because now begins what we call in history the European colonial expansion. Okay? And the problem is that all the structures of domination I've been explaining to you now, they will take them and now take them to the Americas. When they arrive to the Americas, 
they will use the methods of conquest of Al-Andalus, now extrapolate to the Americas. Okay? So if it was, if the history would have stopped there and there would have been no European colonialism, we would be talking about something very uh, marginal. marginal in history. Okay? The reason it did not begin marginal is because they went global with this, you know? And then they took these structures of, you know, uh, one identity, one, one religion, one state, all these things I've been describing to you, to the Americas. Okay? When Columbus arrived in the Americas, he writes in his journal, October 12, 1492, these are people without religion. He stepped out of the boat, of the boat for one hour or two, come back to the boat, and he writes, these are people without religion. Okay. This is very important. This is very important. Okay. People without religion, if I tell you today, oh, these people have no religion, you will say, oh, Ramon is saying that they're atheists. Right? But in the late 15th century, when you say people without religion, it has a different connotation in Christian imaginary. Because in Christian, Christendom imaginary, humans have religion. You might have the wrong one. We might go to war about that. I will force conversion because my God is the correct one. Yours is wrong. Okay? I force you to conversion. And if I have to kill you, I'll kill you. Okay? But you're a human because you have religion. Right? What happens if people have no religion? That means you don't have religion, you don't have God. If you don't have God or gods, you don't have a soul. And if you don't have a soul, you're like an animal in, in nature. And so this is the first moment, because when he put that in writing, began a huge debate all over Europe about who are these people in the Americas. And there was the side of people that sided with Columbus' position that these were people without soul. And people without soul means you are like an animal, and you could enslave him, you could do all the atrocities to these people. It's like having a cow or a horse in the process of production. But I'm sorry, can I ask a question right here? Didn't he observe that all these people have some rituals, some, some things that they have a religion, actually? He did, like modern anthropologists. He went there a few hours and wrote a book and became a specialist, you see? And then put them in cages and brought them back. Did you know that? He came back with nude indigenous people in cages and, and then crossed from Portugal all the way to Spain to, you know, to, the, to show them to, to, to everybody to, you know, in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula and then show them to the king and the queen. Look what I found here. Okay, and like animals. Okay, and so uh, he he basically did like modern anthropologists. You know, uh, he became the expert in two hours. Okay, and he decided he done, and he put it in writing like that. The first day he arrived to America, October 12, 1492. That's ten months after the meeting in Granada, where he get the authorization. So 1492 is a major year, foundational year here. 1492 for the formation of this European colonial expansion. 
Okay? And so what happened was that when he put that in writing, that opened a debate that was not just a debate in Spain. It was all over Europe. It was written in Latin. And through the networks of the church, this was debated all over. And the other empires were watching the Spaniards. The British, the Germans, the French, they were watching. Saying, oh, all this gold, all this silver, these people are bringing from there. Wow, you know? So how are they doing this? So they were watching, okay? Watching this. And what happened was that uh, the debate was, be, you know, people saying, okay, these people have no soul, and other people saying, okay, these people, there were critical voices already within the church saying, wait a minute, what if these people have a soul? We are committing a major sin in the eyes of God. We are all going to hell. I mean, what, what are we doing? These people are, are humans, etc. So this debate began. Of course, the empire had decided already. They have no soul, they're animals, and they, they, they enslaved them very fast. Okay? And they were already producing, you know, sending gold and silver. And it's with that gold and silver that they were able to defeat the Ottomans in the Battle of, the, of Lepanto. And this is what I always remind many Muslims, that especially North African Muslims and Turkish Muslims, that if you get ingrained in the Mediterranean, you lose sight of the Atlantic. And it was a shift in relational forces of the expansion to the Atlantic what created the demise of Muslim civilization. Because what happened was that with the flow of silver and gold and with indigenous blood, they were able to build their armada, beat the, the Ottomans, and with the flow of silver and gold, they were able to devalue all the wealth of Muslim civilization. They created an inflation okay? and devalued all the wealth gold, etc., of Muslim civilization. That was a major shift in world power, the Atlantic. If you stay looking at the Mediterranean, you lose sight of the Atlantic and what it meant for the rise of the West. Okay? But if you get focused on the Mediterranean, then you get into the trouble of thinking, oh, look at this. The Europeans have invented all these things. Look at the wealth they're producing. There's something wrong with us. Oh, maybe our spirituality is wrong. Maybe something wrong with us. And then you start going into this uh, never-ending process of thinking there's something wrong with you, and then fetishizing the West, okay? fetishizing modernity as if there was something good about it. When modernity was always a colonial project of genocide, epistemicide, and they, the rise of the West was through the colonization and enslavement of the rest of the world. You see? And that happened with the Ottomans. In the 19th century, you have this debate because suddenly they became enchanted with so-called Western modernity. And they thought that the wealth of the West was because they're doing something right that we're not doing correctly. And then they start, oh, maybe we need to reform ourselves. Maybe we need to do this or that. And then went on and on until finally... They become so westernized, and then you have Kemalism. Okay? And, so, and, and finally, the, 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 the destruction of the, of the Ottoman in, after the First World War. But I'm just saying, look at how this uh, world power shift from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic is fundamental to understand the rise of the West and the demise of Muslim civilization. That remember, Al-Andalus was not only very important as a space of knowledge production 
because of what I described of the notion of Tawhid that allowed for that possibility, also because it was connected with a, 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 a corridor that went from North Africa all the way to you know, uh, East, West Africa, Middle East, South Asia, Central Asia, East China, Indonesia, all the way to Mindanao. So there was a corridor, not only of commodities, but also of knowledge going back and forth, okay? That allowed then for this uh, growth in knowledge production uh, uh, in, in uh, Al-Andalus as compared to uh, Christian Europe at the time. Christian Europe was very marginal, had no connection with the rest of the world. It was very marginal village of the world, very impoverished, very obscurantist. And so what happened was that the European colonial expansion coming to America and this narrative about people with soul, people without soul, began a huge debate that by the mid-16th century became a finally, a, let's put it this way, a systematized. Because that's when the, the king decided, because there was this debate, about, okay, are we doing right or wrong in the conquest of America? Is the conquest justified or not? Well, this question was always there, okay? And so they decide to do a, a trial. They put the case in a tribunal. At that time, authority of knowledge was in Christendom, in the church, okay? And so they put this trial to decide if the conquest is justified or not. And they have, on the one hand, Chines Sepulveda, and this is very important trial, for war history for the next 450 years, because in that trial the debate was about indigenous people. Are they human or not? Sepulveda, Gene Sepulveda theologian, Aristotelian theologian, that by the way, they learn Aristotle through the philosophers of Al-Andalus, okay? Uh, they, they learn modern science through what came through Islamic civilization through Al-Andalus, okay? then they hide it, cover it, and then make you believe that modern science, philosophy, etc. is naturally inherently European. No? But the point is that Gine Sepulveda argues that these are barbarians. Okay? Uh, he sided with the line of people without soul. Okay? Barbarians that uh, uh, is justified to conquer them because this is, and here comes the concept of empty space. He's the first one to theorize the concept of empty space. Have you heard this? You could see that in John Locke. You could see that in George Bush and Ariel Sharon. Okay? Mm -hmm. Empty space. This is a, a land that is empty of humans and therefore we as Christians are justifying taking over. Okay? And and so the concept of empty space, that the people who are there are not humans, are animal-like, inferior to me, justify, that therefore it's empty space, therefore I have the, the, the authorization of God to come here and colonize the place, you see, because there's no humans here. This began with Sepulveda argument, it's there, where he talks about uh, espacio vacío, empty space, where he's saying, this is empty space, these people are animal-like, these people are savages, barbarians, etc. And uh, the, 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 he sided with the line of people without soul. Then you have Las Casas. Las Casas have a different line. He talked about these people are barbarians that, that have a soul, but they're barbarians to be Christianized. Okay? So our job is not to do these atrocities, to Christianize them. Okay? 
So that, that was, these were the two positions. People without soul and barbarians to be Christianized. Here you have the two lines of racism in the West. Okay? The two lines. In the 19th century, when the authority of knowledge passed from the church to, uh, to science, okay? the new religion of science, the narrative of Sepulveda, of people without soul, is going to be secularized into people without the human genetics. People without DNA, without the human DNA. But it's the same, the same dog with a different color, okay, with a different, but it's the same argument. Yes, people without soul to people without the human DNA. It's the same argument, they just, this pseudoscience of the 19th century just secularized this theological debate of the 16th century. But it's a strong continuity into that. And I just need to get the Latin phrase that Christopher Columbus sent back to his superiors, that these are people without, without soul. Do you have that? Without soul. Yeah. Uh, you, could, you could see that because he wrote it in, 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 in Castilian. He wrote it in Castilian, this. Okay. Okay? In, and you, you could find, he said, Pueblo sin secta, in Spanish. Pueblo sin secta. And the reference? In his diary. Look at his diary in English, October 12, 1492. That day, what he wrote that day. And you will find there the, this people without sect. But sect meant at the time religion, you know? And, and so he was saying these people have no religion, therefore have no God, have no God, have no soul, therefore you have, the, have no soul, they're animals. Okay? So here it comes, look at how the first moment of racism is a theological racism, it's not about skin color. It's not about skin color. Racism here began as a theological racism, dehumanizing people based on this line of the human, of people without soul, people without, people with soul, okay? So, so you have now the secularization of Sepulveda in the 19th century with scientific racism, all of that, you know, from people without, without soul to people without the human DNA. And then you have the Las Casas line, Okay, because the line of Sepulveda is in the natural sciences, okay, biology, all of this. The Las Casas line of barbarians to be Christianized is secularized in the social science, especially anthropology of the 19th century, from barbarians to be Christianized to, to primitive to be civilized. It's a secularization of the same narrative, but now under the guise of scientific social science. Okay? From barbarians to be Christianized to primitive to be civilized. Okay? So you see how these two narratives, and this is what today we call in the literature biological racist discourses, the Sepulveda line, and the cultural racist discourses, the, the Las Casas line. And you could see across Western Empire, you know, colonial history, how they have used the two you know, uh, these two forms of racism across the, the past 500 years, you know, in some places they emphasize one or the other, etc. or they can use the two against one people. I mean, it's very, you could see variations of these two discourses over the next 450 years until today, okay? In Islamophobia, in a sense, is a form of cultural racism, okay? Uh, of Las Casas type, okay? It's the civilizational, culturalist line. Okay? And it's, it's a racist 
kind of discourse. Okay? That in literature is called cultural racism to distinguish it from the other forms of biological racism. Okay? The way they tie up is because when you take cultural features of a group and, and naturalize them. And that's how it ties with the biological. But anyway, uh, the point is that you could see the secularization of this. And the other consequence of this trial is not only that it was super important for Europe, you know, the racism as a logic that is an organizing principle of all the forms of social existence, including the political economy, okay, because now everything is going to be organized along the axis of the West and the rest. Aesthetics, pedagogy, epistemology, spirituality, uh, economics, forms of political authority. You go over the, the range of all the forms of social hierarchies and social existence, and you see this West and the rest cutting across everything, and so you have superior art, inferior art. Superior knowledge, inferior knowledge. Superior people, inferior people. Superior forms of, of political auto, uh, authority, inferior forms, savage, barbarian forms of political authority. Uh, 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 superior forms of economics, inferior forms of, you know, you could go over the list and see how this West and the rest narrative is going to constitute basically all the forms of social existence and polit political power structure, epistemic structure, pedagogical structure, aesthetic structure, you go over the list, okay? Now, uh, after this trial, then they decided to do what? Although in the long run, Sepulveda won the trial, in the short run, it was won by Las Casas. So they decided that indigenous people in America are barbarians to be Christianized. So what did they do? They brought the encomienda from the conquest of Al-Andalus now to implement to indigenous people. You might think that now they think, oh, they have a soul, they might em emancipate them from colonialism. No. They put them in the encomienda, a form of coerced labor with an encomendero watching the conversion. The same methods of the conquest of Al-Andalus. Okay? Brought to the Americas now. Okay? And now in the America they spread the encomienda all over. Okay? Against, and the encomendero is the guy who, exploiting your labor and watching your conversion. Because now they decide these are barbarians to be Christianized. No? Now, who is doing... They took them away from slave labor and put them into the encomienda, which is another form of coerced labor. Okay? Who is doing now slave labor? Who is going to do slave labor now? Then they decide, they make a decision to bring, kidnap Africans and bring them to the Americas. So we're talking here a process of uh, now bringing Africans to replace indigenous people in slave labor. Okay? This is when now racism began to move in the direction of pigmentation. Okay? But why did they do that? Why did they um, change the slave labor from the indigenous? Because the in the decision of the trial, they decide that these are barbarians to be Christian. They have a soul. Therefore, it's a sin to have enslaved them. Therefore, we need to Christianize them. How do we Christianize? Like we did with the, with the Muslim and Jews. So Bring the encomienda for Al-Andalus. They deserve to be Christianized. So we're going to now Christianize like they did in Al-Andalus. They put the Muslim and Jews in this form of labor with encomendero watching, exploiting labor or also watching their conversion. Oh, after the conversion of the indigenous people, it was sin to 
make them slaves. Is that how they, in, no. in their no, 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 no. They first enslave them, okay. thinking these are animals. Okay. There's no sin in enslaving them. Right. Now, in this trial in the mid 16th century, they make a different decision. They say, "Blas Casas won the trial and say these are people we saw." but are in a barbaric stage that need to be Christianized. You see? And so let's, we cannot enslave them because it's a sin in the eyes of God. But then what are we going to do? Well, we put them in the encomienda. So they brought the encomienda system from the conquest of Al-Andalus to the Americas. You see? And now who's going to do slave labor? Africans. So they brought Africans to do slave labor. Okay? So this is... Here you have... Yes? This is confirmed by what happened in South Africa. In 1832, when the British Empire banned slavery, then, or before they uh, banned slavery, then they brought people to conversion to the mission stations. As soon as they converted the slaves, they were free. Not so the case with the Muslims, who were brought in as slaves. So that was... As indentured labor. Yeah, that, that was yeah. the trade-off. Yeah. That is absolutely... Yeah. But th this is... You could see now... See, this history... Now you're making connection with South Africa. But everybody here can make connection to other places. You know, because what happened is that these structures that they practiced in Al-Andalus and then brought to the America, they brought it again to other places, you see? Because what happened... And this, let me continue. I will finish uh, with, with this. Uh, so what happened is... That then, uh, let me let me jump to the because finally what happened is that you know okay we have seen how the methods of Al-Andalus went there to conquer the Americas. Okay, now I'm I'm going to talk about how the conquest of the Americas came back and redefined the conquest of Al-Andalus. Okay? There is two ways. It's not just one way. Because what happened in the conquest of the Americas is that something new emerged that did not exist before. And that is the question of a fundamental questioning of the humanity of other human beings. Okay? Before, the possibility of conversion was there. Because you were considered a human. You had the wrong God. But you're a human. We can convert you. You don't convert, we kill you. Or we, whatever. But... That possibility was open because the question of the humanity was not yet there. That's why I'm doing this historicization to see how before 1492 there were there was oppression in history, there were massacres, there were all kinds of crazy stuff also happening in history, but not qualified along racial lines. Okay? Racism is a modern form of classifying populations and organizing the political economy. It's a modern form. It's not, it didn't exist before. This is the argument I'm making. I'm historicizing this to show that racism is not universal, eternal, or it began at one moment in history. And therefore can end too, because it's a historical thing. It's not something inherent to humans to be racist, which many European Eurocentric narrative makers believe. That this is something inherent to humans. It's not true. Okay? It has a beginning and it will have an end. Okay? But it, 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 the, this, the beginning, I'm describing you the beginnings, how it began. Okay? And, and the point is that in, in this process, they 
the, the question of having sold or not came back to haunt the colonization of Al-Andalus. Okay, let me explain. Those Muslim and Jews who stay in the territory were not were the forced conversion people. Okay? The people forced to convert. They were the ones who stay in Spanish territory. Okay? These people were called now Moriscos, converted Muslims, and Marranos, converted Jews. Moriscos and Marranos. These were the terms used. They're not anymore Muslims. Second, third generation, they're born baptized as Christians. But they were, uh, there was always the surveillance to make sure that there's no secrecy, that people are faking conversion. Okay? That surveillance continued. The suspiciousness continue, but they were living together. But then what happened? The concept of having a soul or not that opened a debate in Europe about indigenous people in the Americas influenced the debate of the conquest of the Moriscos. Because now they're going to, this, a new narrative will emerge in the 16th century, where now third, fourth generation Moriscos that are now fully Christians, are going to be in question because they're going to say these are soulless people. So the concept they use for the conquest of the indigenous people in the Americas is traveling back to Spain and reclassifying the Moriscos as people without soul. Soulless people. Okay? This is very important for Muslims because this is the moment when Islamophobia Medieval Islamophobia, medieval Judeophobia that goes back to the Crusades, turn racial. Up till that point, medieval Islamophobia was a form of religious discrimination, but not a racial discrimination. It became racial in the 16th century when they start questioning the humanity of the descendants of Muslim and Jews. that are not anymore Muslim and Jews. But the descendants are going to be now put in question as humans. But this is a carryover of the Americas. You see? So we saw how they used the methods of conquering the Americas. I forgot to mention epistemicide because they went there and burned the libraries of indigenous people there, the codices and the quipus which were the form of archival of knowledge, they burned them, like they did in Al-Andalus. Okay? Hernán Cortés, the, the, the imaginary of the conquest of Al-Andalus was so strong in the conquest of the Americas, that Hernán Cortés, the famous uh, conqueror of Mexico, I don't know if you heard this name, Hernán Cortés, famous conqueror of Mexico, when he came to... Hernán Cortés. When he came to Mexico, he put in his letters to the, to the king and the queen, he put in his letters... He called, in his letter he put, he called the Aztecs temples, mosques. He said, oh, look, the, the mosque is here, they have a huge mosque, and this, he will, the language he used is the language of, of the Moros, the Moors. He thinks he's there conquering Moors, okay? And so in his ima imagination. So he, he, he extend this imaginary of the conquest of Alanda over there. And you could see that in Columbus Diaries too. He's constantly making reference to the Moors, etc. You could see that all over the conquest of the Americas. The influence of the conquest. They brought all these methods, including not only the encomienda and the, 
and the genocide and all this stuff, but also the epistemicide. They burn the libraries. They burn the libraries. So, for example, we know that the Aztecs have the most precise calendar of the world at the time, 1492, but we don't know how they got there, how they produced that. We don't know it, because all that material was burned. Okay? So, so you have now the, the, in, in, uh, the, finally, the final expulsion of Moors, or of Moriscos, in 1609. They were expelled, finally. And these are the majority Christians, okay? They were expelled just because of being descendants of Muslims and the question of soulless people. And so they start using animal, animal comparisons every time they talk about moriscos. Comparing them with monkeys, comparing them with... Uh, yes, the, the animal began there in the second half of the 16th century. Uh, and finally they expelled them in 1609, okay? So you see how the narrative of religious discrimination, medieval religious discrimination against Muslim and Jews, turned racial in the 16th century. And that's the moment when you have the transformation of anti-Semitism understood in the broad way against Arab Muslim and against Jews, okay, into racial discrimination. Because now there is a more fundamental question. Now it's not that you have the wrong God, or people who pray to the inferior religion are wrong, we need to come. It's that people who pray to the inferior religion are themselves inferior. Because they're going, their humanity is going to be put in question the moment the concept of soulless people began to be applied to them. You see? So this is the moment when you, this medieval religious discrimination turned into racial discrimination. Okay? So this idea that the Nazis in Second World War invented this anti-Semitism, no, you, you have to go back to that time, 16th century, to understand the moment when this shift happened, okay? and how it continued over the next 450 years in Europe. Okay? And, and so in an European coloni colonization of Muslim territories. I mean, you could see this narrative going everywhere. But finally, I want to finish... Uh, well, there is one more conquer that I don't have the time to develop, which is the conquest of women in Europe, which were indigenous women that were burned alive, okay, burned alive, uh, accused of being witches. And these were indigenous women from Europe. When I say indigenous, I'm not talking about skin color. I'm talking about cosmovision, ways of life. Uh, I'm talking indigenity in that sense. They were indigenous from this land, okay? They can be blonde hair, blue eyes, it's, just, it's irrelevant, because their, their forms of life at the time, in 15th, 16th century, were like indigenous people in many areas of rural Europe. And these women have knowledges about astronomy, biology, medicine, plants, all kinds of stuff, okay? And they were then accused of being witches, you see? and. They were, there was a conquer of women killing thousands accused of being witches. And because the, the transmission of knowledge was not through books, it was through oral history, oral, you know, from generation to generation, orally, uh, the, the books were them, their bodies. And so they burned their bodies, they burned them alive. Okay? That was the, what happened at the moment. They burned them in huge numbers. Okay? Like they burned the Library of Cordoba or Granada, or they burned the Codice, or they, they burned them alive okay? in, in big numbers. So here you have the two major structures that you're going to see in the formation of epistemic, uh, epistemic structures of knowledge. 
of the modern colonial world. Because now, uh, when Descartes in the 17th century says, I think, therefore I exist, as the foundation, is considered a foundation of modern Western philosophy, modern Western sciences, etc. This I is going to say, is able to produce a God I view. Okay? A God I view. And this God I view, uh, which is, is going to claim, uh, is, is, this I has the attributes of the Christian God, the, the Christendom God. Okay? He will say, this eye is able to produce a truth with capital T, is able to produce a knowledge beyond time and space, is able to produce a knowledge that is objective in the sense of neutrality. Okay? Able, so he's going to go over and he's going to secularize the attributes of the Christian God into this eye. Without saying, who is this eye? He, he will never say, who is this eye? Okay? But it's a new foundation of knowledge away from the authority of knowledge of the church. Okay? Now, in order to make the argument of a God I view, I call this an idolatric universalism. Because he's going to claim that, that this I can produce a universal knowledge beyond time and space, okay? neutral, like a God I view. He used this term. Okay? So it's going to be now a, a church universalism. Okay? An idolatric universalism. Is going to put himself in the place of God, okay? And as a new foundation of knowledge. And in order to be able to make the argument, he needs two things. Ontological dualism, and ontological dualism means the following. It means split the mind from the body. That is, the mind is a different substance from the body. He needs that argument, and the mind is like the, the Christian God I described. is floating in a cloud, is not situated anywhere and therefore can produce a knowledge God-like, can look at the world from a non-situated position in the world, okay? like God. Okay? And he needs that argument because what is the body if the mind is tied to a body and knowledge production therefore is, there is a unity with, between mind and body and not a dualism. You see? Then you cannot make the claim because then you are not God. You are a particular entity in the world. And you cannot produce a God I view, you see, or a knowledge that is the knowledge of our knowledge. You cannot do that. Because you are just a human being, with all the limits within, you know, being a human being. You see, you are in a body. You're thinking from a body. You're not thinking from, a, a, you know, a, a non-situated space in the world. Okay? So you're not God. Okay? That's why he needs the dualism, to make the claim of your God I view, a God-like knowledge. A knowledge equivalent to God. Okay? And the other thing he needs is a, a methodological solipsism. What he means by this is a, that the subject has achieved certitude in knowledge through a monologue, internal monologue, ask question, answer question, ask question, until finally through an internal monologue, achieve certitude in knowledge. Okay? So, what is knowledge, human beings produce knowledge, dialogically? in social relation with other human beings. If that's the case, you cannot claim a God-like knowledge, because that means you are within time and space. That means you are producing knowledge within a particular historical social conditioning. You cannot claim to be beyond time and space, that's God. Okay? You are within time and space, and therefore you cannot claim a God-like view. So he needs also methodological solipsism. 
to be disconnect the subject from human relations and disconnect the mind from the body to be able to make this argument. This dualism, the material world, the body, and the mind, the spirit, this goes back to Constantine. This dualism of the spiritual and the material now secularized in the epistemology of mind, this, you know, different substance from a body. So it's this dualism now carry on into the modern times, okay, that began with Constantine. Okay? So now, the question is, who is this I? And here is where Enrique Dussel comes, philosopher of liberation in Latin America, and asks the question, who is this I of the car, and who is the car? Where is he thinking from? What is the geopolitics of knowledge of the car? From which interest and part of the world he's thinking from? That's the question he asks. And situate, to situate the car, instead of uh, falling into the premises of the car, you know, that he's thinking from nowhere, he's saying, no, no, wait a minute. Let's situate the car. Who is the car? What is he thinking from? Okay, who is this I he's talking about? And to make a long story short, he said, this I is the imperial being speaking. Because after the I think, therefore I exist, the condition of possibility for someone in the mid-17th century to come and claim I am God-like and come and make an epistemology based on this kind of idolatric universalism of pretending to replace God on earth okay, and becoming the new authority of knowledge in a God-like way, in this idolatric way, Enrique Dussel said the condition of possibility of that is a hundred fifty years of I conquered, therefore I am. So the ego cogito is preceded by the ego conquero. The I think, therefore I exist, is preceded by hundred fifty years. This idolatric I think, therefore I exist, is preceded by hundred fifty years of I conquered, therefore I exist. And this I conquered, therefore I exist, is uh, uh, this colonial expansion I've been describing. When now Descartes is philosophizing from Amsterdam, when Amsterdam has displaced the Iberian Peninsula from the center of this new global system that began with the Iberian expansion to the Americas in 1492. And now in the 30-year war, the Dutch displaced the Spaniards and took over the project. That's when the center of the system went to northwestern Europe and later to Britain and later to the, the Americans. Okay? But the center went from the Iberian Peninsula first to the Dutch by the Dutch Armada beating up the Spanish Armada and taking over the slave trade, taking over the colonization of the Americas, Asia, etc. Okay? So you have, you have this transition that now the Iberian people are going to be inferiorized in relation to the North. Because all the categories of Iberian people ex extended to non-European people, now Northern Europeans are going to be applying to Southern Europeans, especially Iberian people, Portuguese and Spaniards. Okay? So here, who is this side? This is imperial being, but it's a very particular imperial being. It's the Northwestern European Okay? that now has expelled Spaniards and Portuguese, and now are saying that later you comes Kant 
And Kant, Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, is going to say in his anthropological writings, rationality is north of the Pyrenees Mountains. Okay? It's, yes, the Pyrenees Mountains, yeah. Pyrenees Mountains is the mountain that divides north of Spain from south of France. And he said, rationality is, is in the white man, now he's going to use color, north of the Pyrenees Mountains. So, so the transcendental subject of Kant is, this is what happened. We read these philosophers in a very generous way. So we, at the time when, when Descartes said, I think, therefore I exist, everybody knew who was decided. It couldn't be a Muslim or a Jew after the conquest of Al-Andalus. It couldn't be an African or indigenous people after the conquest of the America. And it couldn't be a woman, Western or no Western, after the conquest of women in, in, in the 16th century. So this genocide, epistemicide of the 16th century, that I've been describing to you, is the foundation of who is going to have now the authority of knowledge. And who is going to have the epistemic privilege of knowledge. And this is... And this is the moment when you have who is left, Western man, having now the authority of telling you what is truth, what is reality, what is not reality, what is true, what is not truth, and what is good for you. This is the worst. What is good for you? Because if my knowledge is superior to you, and your knowledge is inferior to me, I know what is best for you. It doesn't matter what you say is good for you. I know what is best for you. Okay? And so... Out of this structure comes now the following, because now the question is, the foundation of the Western University is based on this epistemic racism, sexism, which Western men, the authority of knowledge in Westernized University. You go to any department of social science, humanities, you name it, it's always men of five countries. French, Germans, British, Americans, and Italians. It's without exception. It's amazing. We're in the 21st century and we're carrying on structural knowledge that is so provincial. And the argument they will make is everybody else is particularistic. They're the only ones who have universal capacity to universality. You see? Because they, this is the, the idolatric thing. They are God, the God I view, non situated anywhere, and therefore they are objective, meaning objectivity and neutrality. And therefore my knowledge. Is superior to yours. Whatever you say, you're a Muslim, you're particular, particularistic. You're a Buddhist philosopher, you're particularistic. We are the only ones that have universal capacity. Because we're thinking from nowhere. God I view. You see? We're thinking from, we're not situated anywhere. We are objective. You see? This is the argument. And they beat you up if you fall into the trap of claiming now against them that you are thinking from nowhere too. You have to, the way to fight back is to situate them. Instead of you falling into the trap and saying, oh, I'm, I'm also what I view. You know? No. You have to say, no, I'm sorry. That's idolatric universalism. And you're not thinking from nowhere. You're thinking from a particular location, particular interest, particular tradition of thought. And you, you situate them. They hate when you do that. When you situate them. That's the, the worst you can do. They, they will... They will jump in the chair when you do that, okay? But, but, but I would think in a second. Finish in a second, we open for discussion. So, so, so the point is, why is it that such a provincial structure of knowledge, not only in westernized universities, you could see that in the westernized left. And I say westernized university, westernized left. I didn't say western left, western university. Watch this. Because the westernized left 
and the Western University is everywhere in the world today. You have a Western night left in Turkey. You have a Western night university in Turkey. You have a Western night left in Dakar, in Senegal. You have a Western night university in Senegal. You have these are structures of power of the global system. The Western university is a fundamental structure of power to create the westernized elites that are going to be the intermediaries between the West and the rest. And they are going to get the crumbs. Okay? They are going to get the crumbs and do the job. But to achieve that, you need the westernized university in New Delhi, in Dakar, in Rio de Janeiro, everywhere, to colonize the minds and be able to create a westernized elite that are going to be the intermediaries between the West and the rest. Okay? Now, why is it that this provincial structure of knowledge is still here with a force? Despite the fact that this is very clearly a provincial knowledge disguised as universal, because these are, after all, Western men of five countries that compose 12% of the population of the world. Which means that the social historical experience of 12% of the population of the world is giving us the categories to understand the rest of the world. It's, this is provincialism at its best, okay? It's, and and they, they sell us this as some kind of universalistic theory that we have to master to apply. Look at this word, apply elsewhere, okay? This is a very colonial epistemology, and we are buying into those structures in a, in a big way, okay? Because then we're giving legitimacy to something that is so, that was created out of three genocide epistemicides in the 16th century. It's that that gave them the privilege at the epistemic, political, economic level. The, 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 the genocide epistemicide of the 16th century against Al-Andalus, against the America, against women in Europe. This is the, the foundation that gave them Western men the authority of knowledge. And why is it that still this structure haven't been changed or transformed? Because it ties, this coloniality of knowledge ties with the coloniality of power. What I mean by that is that it gives the epistemic foundation to the coloniality of power that exists in the world today. If my knowledge is superior to yours, and I know what is best for you, Okay? It doesn't matter what you claim is best for you. Okay? So I have the authority. So we went from 16th century Christianize or I'll kill you. Okay? Because I know what's best for you. The best thing for you is to Christianize. You don't Christianize. Then I have the authority to kill you. Okay? Because uh, to save your soul from your barbarianism. Here you have the seeds of genocide. 19th century civilized or I kill you. You are an obstacle to progress, to civilization. And I try to persuade you that you need to get rid of your clothes and your spirituality and your knowledge. I don't convince you by peaceful ways, then I will have to do it by force. Millions of indigenous people kill around the world in the 19th century. 16th century, millions of people kill under Christianity or kill you. Okay? 20th century, develop or I kill you. You are underdeveloped. You don't, you don't know what underdevelopment is. Here is the recipe of development. Well, you don't understand it by peaceful means. Then we will have to use the force. For, for the best, that's the best for you. Because in the name of development, progress, then I'm going to put a military coup in your country. We organized by the CIA okay, 
to have developmentalist uh, uh, military dictatorships around the world so that you get rid of your underdevelopment. And you know what that means. That means open markets to transnational corporations, open markets to uh, the exploitation of labor, you name it, okay? And now, 21st century, democratize or I kill you. So you have millions of people killed under develop or I kill you. Millions in the world disappeared. Just in Indonesia, the first month of the coup d'etat in 65, they killed one million people. Just in Indonesia, the first month. Okay? Now, not to talk about all the people they kill in Africa, Latin America, and other parts of Asia through this CIA coup d'etat. Okay? You, you count the number, we're talking about millions of people killed. Now, democratize or I kill you. I know what is democracy, you don't know what is democracy, I know what is best for you, so I'm going to bring democracy to you with the tanks and the rifles. Okay? So, look at this, look at how the, the epistemic foundation that I call epistemic racism is at the foundation of this coloniality of power because now they, that gives them the authority of knowledge to tell you what is good for you. So you want to develop your economy? Here is the neoliberal recipe. And we have the authority over you because we are the economists in Harvard or Princeton or in, in Oxford telling you what are the recipes of development and what are the recipes of neoliberalism for you to become wealthy like us. Right? Because they have this authority of noise epistemic racist, sexist structure because they exclude everybody else as inferior inc including women of the five countries not even the women of the five countries are included as part of the canon of, of western thought okay? they are out so we're talking about racial patriarchal structure and then they go around the world telling you what is woman liberation what is uh, all this stuff preaching about all these things when, you know, they have practiced genocide against their own women, okay? And they have constructed a war in which their own women are completely out of the conversation, okay? And then they go around preaching uh, to the rest of the world, uh, what is woman liberation? And you have the, the white feminists falling into that trap, also going around telling women from around the world, what does liberation mean, okay? And falling into the traps again, of my epistemic is superior to you and therefore I know what is good for you and therefore if you are a feminist, you have to be a feminist like me in Paris or New York and I'm going to tell you what is liberation for you. Okay? So, you have the same thing repeated over and over again in different spaces but I'm going to finish with this just to tell you that a lot of these structures have been swallowed by all of us and I include myself here. Okay? That colonization has been a major, major a, a, a impact, have created a major impact that we still don't know or don't begin to understand how deep the impact of this has been for the world at large to the point that indigenous people around the world are calling this western civilization a civilization of death. Why? Not only because it has killed more human beings than any other social system or global system world history, okay? because they have disappropriation, but also because the way they appropriated science in the 16th century, 14th, 15th, 16th century, from Western civilization, from East, I'm sorry, from Muslim civilization, they appropriate the philosophers, they appropriate the scientists to found knowledge, scientific knowledge. 
That's why Copernicus, we study Copernicus, but we don't study the people he plagiarized. The school of Baghdad, that 600 years before Copernicus, have demonstrated that the Earth is not the center of the universe, that it goes around the sun. And he used, Copernicus used the mathematical formulas of the school of Baghdad that were taken away from those libraries they were burning, okay? And got to the hands of many of these scientists, okay? And now we have the work of George Saliba from Columbia University, historian of science and Lebanese, who have dig into this Copernicus astronomy, all of that, showing where this knowledge came from. And, but they have, their memory has been destroyed to make us believe that they are superior to the rest of the world, you see, and that all that knowledge is naturally, inherently Western and European, and make us believe that our knowledges are inferior, you see. And the, the sad thing is that we, people in the third world, indigenous, Muslim, you name it, fall into the trap of believing all these fairy tales. And, and be our worst enemies. Because we are the first ones repeating these fairy tales and believing them. And then trying to imitate the West. As if the West has something good to teach us. Because the West has built itself through the ashes of genocide, epistemicide everywhere in the world. Okay? Through those ashes. And that modern project is a failure because it's a project of death. What do I mean? They appropriated science... And in the appropriation of science, they got rid of the spirituality. If you have science without spirituality, you have science without ethics. If you have science without ethics, you have science where everything goes. If you have science where everything goes, you have a science of death. Of the industrialization of death. Where there are no limits anymore. To what can you do with science? Because now science becomes idolatric, church. It becomes an end in itself. A machine in itself. Now there are people trying to reproduce the dinosaurs. Now there are people trying to... You look at the scientists, but it's crazy. But there are now no limits. Because it's science without ethics. They throw away, they appropriated the knowledge of Islamic scientists, Muslim scientists, and throw away the spirituality. And there you have modern uh, Western sciences that are sciences without ethics are sciences of death. Where now nature, because of the dualism that I explained before from Constantine to Descartes, nature is exterior to the human. And nature is, is a means towards an end. The moment you take that rationality okay, as central to build technology, you have the rationality of the destruction of life. Because if nature is exterior to the human and is a means towards an end, any technology built around that rationality, having thought about reproducing life, is a, a destruction of life. In the notion of Tawit, the notion of difference within unity, you have the possibility of thinking technologies that have the rationality of reproduction of life because the human is not exterior to the cosmos. Human is inside the cosmos. And the cosmos is not a means to an end. It's an end in itself. The moment you take that rationality that you could see also in indigenous people around the world, not just among Muslims, you have there a technology, the rationality to produce a technology of reproduction of, of life.
This is, look at how this thing that sounds like trivial has so much impact. This cosmological understanding of Tawit versus dualism between nature and the human is a huge impact in the life of the planet. Look at this. And so that's why indigenous people are saying, oh, and aboriginal people around the world, this is a civilization of death. Because it has killed more human beings than any other in world history, but also because it's destroying life in the broad sense of life, beyond the anthropocentric notion of life. To the point that we don't know if we'll be able to breathe a hundred years from now. But anyway, stop here.